Sometime in your life or somewhere in your life, you will be swept into a situation that is so horrible, so painful, so troubling, so unexpected, so entirely different than you ever imagined, that you'll be convinced that there is no way you're going to survive. There's no way that God can work out His good purposes, surely, in the situation you're going to find yourself in. And you will be wondering to yourself, and maybe to, uh, among others, whether or not you can even hold on to your faith. There is no way that God's glorious things, you will be convinced can happen from within inside the horrible job situation or the hostile marriage, the fearful illness, the family disaster, the uncertain future, the perplexing situation that God seems to have you in. And you will, in desperation, allow your heart to ask the question, where's God? And there will be people around you who don't believe in God or don't follow God who will be whispering that in your ear or shouting it in your ear. Where is your God? You're such a righteous person. You follow Him so faithfully. Where is He now? As you lay on your bed at night through the watches of the darkness, you will allow your heart to ask that question. Where's God? Where is He? Some of you are already in that situation. Some of you have been there and are coming through it. Some of you are yet to go there. So I want to ask you a question this morning. When God looks weak, what should God's people believe? We're going to begin a series this morning in the book of Daniel. It's the setting. And this really establishes the setting for us this morning of the number of weeks that we will study this text. This is a very difficult time for God's people. A time that will seem very familiar to some of you, even though it was thousands of years ago. In fact, um, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1 and... Before we read the text, we're only read, read a few verses this morning just to establish the setting. But, but the time frame as the book begins is 605 B.C. The reason we know that is because it establishes for us some historical realities that can be traced to that time. At the time of, of Daniel, uh, just before Daniel was writing his memoirs, The great nations of the world were Assyria and Egypt. They were the great powers that kind of sandwiched the the people of God. But there was a people group that was rising to power in the ancient Near East. The people of Babylon, modern day Iraq. And they were rising to power. And and at that time, of course, the king of of Judah, the king of the southern tribe of Israel was... uh, a young man by the name of Jehoiakim. 
He was the son of a faithful king by the name of Josiah. King Josiah was faithful to God in all his ways. And God blessed the people and blessed the land. But when Josiah died, his son came to the throne, Jehoiakim, and he did not follow God with all of his heart. Rather than lean upon God and trust in God, he decided that he would lean upon Egypt. And so he he gave hush money to Egypt on a regular basis to protect him, to look after it, to look after Judah. But this rising power in Iraq, this rising power of Babylon, came to power and decided to go to battle. Once they had taken care of Assyria, they took care of Egypt in the Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. And on their way back, they decided to make an appetizer out of God's people in Judah. And so they took King Jehoiakim and the people of God in Judah. It is in that setting that we open up the pages of Daniel and look into Daniel chapter 1. It says, therefore, us in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Our father... We are not going to cover much terrain in terms of scripture this morning, but we are going to cover massive amounts of theological truth. For oozing from these few verses is something important that God's people need to reside as foundational to their hearts, to my heart, Lord. And I pray that you would be pleased to help us this morning to glean everything there is of truth here for our own journeys. Lord, the situation here, although it sounds remote, it sounds like um, battles of ancient kings, boring things of history. In fact, you're writing our story here. The names are different. The circumstances are different. But the reality is the same. Where is our God in times of trouble? What should we believe? What do we hold on to, Lord? And Father, I pray for those who are right now, this morning, with us today in this place, or connected to our family who are hurting desperately, who are finding themselves in a moment where they are asking this very question. And Father, I pray that you'll prepare those who are going to be asking these questions. We need to know where you are at all times. So I pray, Father, that you would visit us with power, with your presence, with the power of God's word. Shape us and change us, Lord. Encourage us and strengthen us. Build us up, Father, to be people of faith, steadfast, unmovable, I pray, in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, what was the outward appearance? What did it look like? If, if you were, I, I want you to think about being there, 605 BC. All of a sudden, this hostile nation that serves foreign gods shakes its fist at the God of the universe, rolls into town, and takes you captive. What would it feel like? What did it look like? What did they think? The pagan Babylonian man-king sacks the holy city of God. Can you see the headlines in the Jerusalem Express? The city of man sacks the city of God! Exclamation mark! Question mark! What's with that? As if that wasn't enough, it says in the text that the articles from the temple of God, the artifacts of God worship are carted off from God's temple to the temple of the God in Babylonia, it says here. In the original language, and perhaps as a footnote in your Bible... Beside Babylonia, at the bottom of your Bible, it probably mentions a word, a name, the name Shinar. And to those of you who are outstanding students of the Bible, of your scriptures, you're saying, wait a second, I've I've heard of that place before. I've heard of Shinar. I, I know I've read about it somewhere. Wait a minute. Back early in the scriptures, in the book of Genesis... 11 chapters along, Shinar, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the story of the Tower of Babel. The place was Shinar, a place of, of self-aggrandizement, a place where puny human man said, we'll build a tower to heaven so that we can make a name for ourselves. And here it is all over again Man making a name for himself, shaking his fist at God and saying, we will do whatever we want to. A place of false religion, a place of, uh, of self-will. Let's build ourselves a city that even God won't be able to shake. And God's worship stuff is being held as a hostage by the profane. The arts are in the hands of the vulgar. What other things would we have seen and would we have wondered about? It says not only was the holy city of God sacked and the artifacts of God worship carted from the temple of God into a pagan temple. But it says the cream of the crop of God's people and their future, the young men, were taken hostage, kidnapped and exiled into a land and a culture hostile to the things of God. It's enough to make you want to give up, isn't it? The only conclusion you could draw is that 
God can't look after his city. He can't look after his people. He can't even look after his religion. And you can imagine the enemy whispering in the ears of God's people, where is God? To the faithful who had served him and sacrificed diligently, was it worth it? As you're being hauled off or seeing your son being hauled off into exile? Was it worth it to serve God? Is it worth it? Is this the end of Israel? The end of Yahweh worship? The end of faith? The end of God? Are are there actually things in this world that are too hard for God? I I guess God isn't stronger than than Babylon. I guess there are just some things that that, that are outside of his control. He, he, He can't take care of this situation. Is it now every man for himself? How are we going to fit in? Are we going to be swallowed up by the culture around us? What should we do? What should we do? Will the rumors of massive layoffs touch my department? Me? Surely not. Surely God has placed me in a bubble. A bubble where he places the righteous. Untouchable. You serve him. You sacrifice. You love him. Cancer? Violence? Thievery? Can't come near me, can it? Will my child be hauled off into exile? Into a culture hostile to the things of God? Surely not. So is God weak? Is faith foolish? Have we just been kidding ourselves? Are our enemies right that that Christianity is just a crutch for weak people? Is that what we should believe? Encompassed by trouble and trials and distress? Has God forgotten about me? Is God mad at me? Let me just share something with you that's crucial. It is most important that you establish what to believe before you rush into how to behave. What's going on here? Who's in charge? Will I survive with my faith intact? Can I get through this? Am I still in his hands? Let, let, me, let me assure you of something before we go any further this morning. You who are beloved by God. You are never, never, merely a pawn in the hands of hostile forces. Not ever, ever, regardless of how the appearance seems to be playing out. 
So what are we to believe? I want you to look closer at the text. Look carefully. Before Daniel launches too far into his memoirs, he sets the record straight about what to believe and what to believe is really behind the goings-on of things and who is really behind the going-on of things. Verse 2, and it says, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The real story behind the appearance of this story and every story is not a story It's not a strong king and a weak God. It's the Lord, Adonai, orchestrating some sort of event, employing a pagan king as pawn. Daniel wants us to know right from the get-go of his memoirs about his story and about what he learned and about, about about what God wants us to believe before we behave in any sort of way is to mention the name Lord. Now, by the way, over the last number of months, we have spent some time on that name, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the tetragram in Hebrew meaning, meaning, yes, yeah, the same as the first service. These are, these are the moments that cause the teacher just to wilt. What's that name? The great I am, meaning Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. But that's not the name Daniel uses here. If you look closely at your text, it's capital L, little o, little r, little d. That's the name Adonai. Adonai means the master. The Lord over all of the universe. The one with all authority. The one par excellence to be bilingual in our own country. This is the great Lord over all things. Daniel is is saying, this Lord, the one who decides on all things, has decided to deliver... God's people into the hands of the profane. We'll talk about why that's the case in a few moments, but that's nevertheless the reality that Daniel wants us to know. Daniel wanted his people to know. Daniel wants us to know. God wants us to know. It's emphasis on ownership, emphasis on control. The reason that Nebuchadnezzar was able to cart God's people and take the artifacts to the temple of a pagan god and take the cream of the crop away is because God decided to allow him to. Otherwise, it would never have happened. It's the result of God's will. Now, by the way, when any of these kinds of circumstances come upon us, it's always that God is, from the starting point, schooling us on our powerlessness in our own strength. It's so easy for us to go through life when things are really clicking and we really start to really accomplish some things to think, man, it's really my savvy. I'm really quite talented. I'm really knocking these things off on my own. And we start to believe that I'm really pulling this off. And God just takes his baby finger and just 
knocks out a problem. And we realize just how powerless we are. And all the hush money that Jehoiakim was paying to Egypt was not able to protect him when a stronger king came along. So dominant is the Lord over the affairs of man, by the way, that he is able to mix discipline and blessing in the context of exile and produce his amazing good purposes. If you know anything about the book of Daniel, and I think many of you do, there's a mixture of things going on here. King Jehoiakim was wicked. And so this exile event was, in fact, discipline. But by the same token, there were all kinds of people within the, the people of God that were not wicked. There were, there were any number of people who were very faithful to God. They're being, they're being carted away too. You know of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <coughs> you know of these ones. And there were many others who were faithful. So what are we to understand? We're, we're to acknowledge and know that That God is able to mix blessing and discipline within his community in a scenario of exile and accomplish his great purposes. What do I mean by that? Here's how the two can function for God's glory. Way back in the early stages of the written accounts of of God's work among his people, back in Genesis chapter 12, the father of our faith, Abraham, was promised something. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, verse 2, verse 3, Abraham there was promised by God that he would be blessed. God said, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing. And he further went on to say to the childless Abraham at the time, and I will cause your offspring to be a blessing to all the people of the earth. And we all know, looking back now at history, looking back at biblical history, looking back at New Testament history, we know that that the ultimate promise, fulfillment, was in Christ, who came as the offspring of Abraham, came and blessed the people of all the world. But that same Christ has ascended to heaven. And in ascending to heaven, he's raised up a people after his own name, called the church. The church is the place where Christ indwells, and he continues his ministry through us of blessing all the peoples of the world. We are called upon, this promise still is functioning through you and through me. He is making us a blessing to all the people of the world. We continue to fulfill that role. We are presently called upon by God to be people living in exile. You say, wait a second, we haven't been carted off anywhere. This is Canada. We live in, at least we live north of the land of the free. (laughs) I think we're more free. What are you talking about? God has permitted us to live every day of our lives, rubbing shoulders with people who are hostile to the things of Jesus Christ. True? We have been people, the church. The church is a people living in exile. 
We don't live in a theocracy of Israel. We live in a country increasingly hostile to the things of God. We're scratching our heads all the time saying, why is it becoming less and less easy to serve God, to serve God's purpose in the country? Because we live in exile. We are this people. The lessons that are learned in Daniel are lessons that absolutely are for us and applicable to us. Not only does God promise to bless, but God promises to discipline. In the case of Judah, some, as I said, were wicked. Others would prove faithful. Exile would sift the real from the pretenders. That's what life does in exile. In Deuteronomy 28, God made this statement to his people. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in numbers, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your ancestors have known. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. When they were hauled off to exile, these words would be resonating in their heads. We've been faithless. We've failed God. Had all of them failed God? Were all of them faithless that were in this trouble? No, I say it to you over and over again. No, they were not. Just because you're in trouble or trials or a distressing time of your life, is it necessarily because you are under discipline of God? No, a thousand times no. So how do we navigate our life in these scenarios? By understanding the greatness of God. The greatness of God when he looks weak and you are in distress. When the curtain of reality is open for us to see. And of course that's God's word. This morning we're opening the curtain of reality. These are the truths we find there. One, God is sovereign, in charge, always. No matter How the outward appearance looks to the contrary. God is always in charge. The real power is resident in heaven alone, always, in spite of the many mysterious times that we find ourselves in. These people did not know exactly what was going on or had come upon them. He allows us to be in exile and enlists at time painful things to serve as deeper purposes for us. The second observation I want to make out of this introduction this morning is this. God regularly will tweak your circumstances to remind you that unless he prevents and protects, you are completely powerless to look after anything you are or have. And sometimes we just need to have all the props of our own making, the false gods we've been relying upon, the, self, the self-trust To disappear. Sometimes God puts us helplessly in the clutches of the other side just to get our attention. Sometimes we move ourselves there. That's why Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 14. he, He wrote them this song that the ancient church knew. In the 
setting where many of them were flirting with the other side, where many of them were, were um, bringing their faith to disrepute, when, when many of them were failing in their testimony before God, when, when many of them were looking around at the circumstances of persecution and trials and, and distress and saying, maybe it doesn't pay to serve God, maybe I should just live like them. Paul writes and says, remember the ancient song of the church. Arise, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine in you. Now, by the way, many of them might have been thinking this is a horrible situation that's taken place. We've been hauled to Babylon, taken away from our home and everything we know, taken away from our family and everyone we love. And, and, and maybe it's just going to be like a, a two-week thing and God will get over it and he'll let us go back. Or, or maybe we can consider it like a, a month vacation in Iraq. Maybe it won't be too long. Maybe this test this ordeal, this trial, that, this struggle that I'm going through. It'll, it'll be over quickly. Maybe, maybe I don't have to worry too much about it. We read in the book of Jeremiah that there were many pastors who were being raised up at the time who were preaching that sermon of prosperity and wealth to them and saying, nah, don't worry about it. God got a little bit worked up for a few minutes. He's going he's gonna to work things out. He'll, he'll take you all back and you'll all be fine in a matter of moments. No problem. Eleven years went by. Nothing had changed. In 594 B.C., God raised up a truthful preacher by the name of Jeremiah who stood before the people and said, Eleven years? Let me tell you how long this ordeal is going to take place. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For 70 years. Wait a second. That means some of us will die before we ever go back. We we won't be going back. Jeremiah, are you telling me that I'm going to die in a Babylon? I'm never going to get out of this situation of exile. How long, Lord? How long do I have to live with this pressure upon my faith day in and day out? I want it to end, Lord, and I want it to end tonight. Regardless of why we are in exile, our situation is shaped by God to enable us to regain our traction with God And be a blessing to those we otherwise might not contact with the gospel regardless of how long, in fact, however long that takes. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 29, you know, something that many of us have used as sort of our kind of life fluffy verse. Set of verses. I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you and not to harm you, the plans to give you a future. We take it right out of context. This was a message that Jeremiah gave to people who were going to have to be in distress for 59 more years. Do we understand?
as time wears on in the pressure of the distress, we lose our footing and we lose grip of our faith. And Daniel's teaching us here, no, no. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. I'm just going to put my life on hold then. If I have to live in exile, I'm, going to, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit and fold my arms and wait until the Lord changes my circumstance. I'm not doing anything. Jeremiah says, here's what God wants you to do. I carried you into exile. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have son- marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Build churches and have those churches grow and have those churches produce more churches. And, and have children. Have lots of children. Have more children than the pagan culture is having. There are some people around here who are taking that literally. Fill the nurseries with people. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which you've been carried into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Work for Canada. Work for Ontario. Work for Oshawa. Seek to prosper the place you live. Seek to be an asset to where you have been placed. Make sure that the people notice you and love you and and, and are happy that you're there. Make sure that they see the greatness of God in your life. Don't fold your arms and pout in the place of distress and, and give the impression that your God is a nasty God, a God that no one would ever want to follow, but rather follow Him with passion and live lives normally. Get involved. For I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper you and not to harm you, the plans to, to uh, give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me. Find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And, and I'll bring you back from captivity. Listen, Grow, flourish, prosper spiritually wherever you are in whatever distressful circumstance you are presently in. There, magnify the great name of the Lord. And and in so doing, I will grow your heart and your heart will be inclined to me and you will seek me and you will be passionate about me. And when you seek me and are passionate about me, I I will be there and I I will save you and I will bring you out of exile. but you're going to be in it for a while. God's purposes are bigger than our Saturday night plans. They really are. I'm learning it more and more all the time. We plan, and we want this to be done quickly. Let's get this ordeal out of the way, Lord. God has a bigger plan and he's working it out and he is in charge and he will bless you and you need to pursue him with all of your heart. Do you understand this? The people of Babylon 
served a pagan god, gods. And all of a sudden, Jeremiah 52 tells us that 3,023 of God's people were airdropped into Babylon. That's a huge mission force. You know, as you look at this from the outward appearance, you're like, whoa, exile, what a horrible thing. They have to move from Israel and live in Iraq, and it's such a, 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 a terrible and a desperate time. Yes, it was. And God says, but look at it this way. You're, you're there as a testimony to the living God. So your trial, your ordeal, your distressful situation takes you places you never thought you would go to encounter people you never thought you would encounter. To tell the people you encounter of the great things of your God. They're watching you in the midst of distress. In the midst of pain. In the place of exile. In the place that's culture is entirely opposite to your culture in Christ. And they're wondering, is your faith genuine or is it fair weather? Is God really worth serving? Daniel, Shadrach... Meshach, Abednego will say, absolutely. Now, as we transition into our time around the Lord's table, let me just say this to you. To those of you who are unfamiliar with the exploits of God through the ages, there is another time when God appeared very weak, a time that has shaped the destiny of people forever. You see, Daniel's setting anticipates the blessings of Christ. The Apostle Paul was accused of appearing very weak. He says to the people in Corinth, I want to tell you about weakness. He says, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness. Yet he lives because of the power of God. When those people walked by Calvary that day and saw the Son of the living God, the one who called himself the God over all the ages... Pinned to a cross, they walked by and wagged their heads and said, God is so weak. And it was from the platform of the cross that Jesus Christ allowed the weakness of death to take him so that the power of God to save would be put in place in your life and in my life. The empty tomb is a symbol of the power of God that just when everything looked bleak, just when everything looked disastrous, just when everything looked like the enemy was winning, and yes, the Son of God is done forever, God raises him from the grave and proclaims there forever that his Son has finished the sacrifice necessary for sin that you and I might live through the power of God. Because hope came in the morning. Your story, if you belong to Christ, is no different. Hold on. Take heart. Be filled with hope. The weak appearing moments are staging for God's powerful purposes to come to pass. This is one of the most important truths I can ever share with you to get through life and get through life well. Are you defeated? Are you persecuted? 
Are you discouraged? Is your situation desperate? Are things looking very bad? Are your children in exile? Are you dying? Are you dead? Is God weak? Is your faith futile? The Lord, Adonai, master par excellence, is always and forever will be in charge. The psalmist writes, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, we will not fear. Why? Because God... Lord, Adonai, master par excellence, is our refuge and our strength and in charge always. Our Father, we pay you tribute this morning. We applaud your greatness. You are the God we need And you have enabled us through your word to understand that you never leave us, you never forsake us, you are in charge. There are people here hurting and desperate, in trouble, in trials, and Father, we are going to hold on to you because you're holding on to us. And we will get through because you will take us through and you have a plan to prosper us. And not to hurt us. To give us hope. And not to discourage us. To give us a hopeful end. Because Jesus Christ in weakness went to the cross. So that the power of God to save. Could be put on display for forever. Thank you Lord in Jesus name. Now as we turn our attention to celebrate the awesome salvation of Christ for us. Please, Lord, make our hearts truly thankful and grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. And to this, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. How long, O Lord? Where are you in my distress? And he answers us this way. I am here. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am in charge, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And I will teach you to rely upon me. And I will place you in opportunities to bless that you could have never imagined because I am the sovereign God over your plans and my purposes for you. So, though the heavens shake, the earth gives way, 
a mountain falls into the sea, and the seas roar and foam, we will not fear, because the Lord is our refuge and our strength. Father, thank you for pulling back the curtain of reality and showing us what's really going on, appearances notwithstanding. You are a good God, and you love us, and you have us in your care. And we thank you in Jesus' name.